pray together. Our great God, we are once again thankful to you. Lord, that we can set under your preached word on this, your Lord's day. God, I pray that everyone among us will believe, God, that, that your wounds have paid our ransom. As the hymn says, Lord, God, I pray for our pastor this morning. I thank you for the gifts that you have given him. I pray that you would sustain him as he is feeling poorly this morning. God, I pray that you would give him strength, give him clarity, give him precision of words, Lord, that, that, you, would, um, that you would have him to say today, God. We pray that, that your word would be proclaimed boldly from your pulpit on this, your day today, God, and pray that you would use it mightily, Lord, to draw unbelievers to yourself and to edify your saints. We pray that you would help us to have focus, help us to hear your words today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. If you turn with me once again in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7. We, we looked at this same passage last week. We, we actually looked at the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 last week. And what we, what we found there are, again, this kind of ongoing pattern that Mark has been demonstrating to us of allusions to the Old Testament. And, and specifically what we find were allusions to the, the Old Testament priesthood and showing that Jesus actually is that which makes others clean. He is the great high priest. Not only is he the son of God, but specifically, he occupies the office of the high priest. And ordinarily, what we would expect is when something clean is touched by something unclean, that which is clean then becomes unclean. But what we find is it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? Everyone who touched Jesus, in fact, even the hem of his garment, becomes clean. And it sets things upside down, and it shows to us the absolute, infinite holiness of God incarnate, clothed in human flesh. Well, I began the sermon last week by, by posing this question. What beliefs, what convictions, what practices do you use to measure your own righteousness or the righteousness of someone else. And, and, and you'll recall, I didn't say, do you do this? I'm assuming the answer is yes, because it is with me too. The question is, what are they? What are those standards? What is it that, that you use to judge your own righteousness and the righteousness of others? And what we discover in the text, and I'm going to read here in a moment again from Mark chapter 7, 1 through 23, what we discover is that the Pharisees would have answered that question very clearly. And one of the main things that they would have said was, oh, I have an answer, I have an answer. If they don't wash their hands when they come out of the marketplace, they're not righteous, they're not holy, they, they are not true followers of Moses and Abraham. They are not true followers of the Lord. And what we see here is a glimpse of Jesus as the high priest pushing back against that and saying, that's not the source of cleanliness. That's not the source of righteousness. And so what we looked at last week as we, we worked through this text was that there were really two things that, that, that came to the surface in the text. One is that we really have to understand what's the true source of corruption? What's the true source of defilement? What is the true source of iniquity? And the Pharisees, again, their answer would have been very clear. It's Gentiles. It's the world. It's the marketplace. It's the things where we, the things where, the places we go and the things we touch, that is the source of our uncleanness. Now, we also read that Jesus had an entirely different answer, didn't he? It is what comes out of a man that defiles him. It is not those things that go into a man, which don't touch his heart. They go into his stomach, and Jesus literally says, those go into the latrine. They don't defile a man. What defiles a man is what comes out of him, his own thoughts. Well, so that's number one. We have to understand the, the 
the true source of corruption, the true source of sin and uncleanness. But secondarily, or related to that, what's the true source of cleansing? And again, the Pharisees would have given one answer. Well, the, the source of cleansing is the tradition of our elders. The tradition of the elders, which says you have to wash in just a certain way. You have to immerse your hands in water and, and ritually cleanse them in just a certain way in order to be clean. Well, Jesus presents himself in a quite different manner. He presents himself as the one who makes clean by faith and faith alone. Now, what I want to do today is, is, is come back to this same text. Come back to chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, and ask this question. What happens if we get this wrong? So we have a true source of corruption given to us here in the text. It's, it's man. It, it's defilement that comes from within. And the true source of cleansing is not within, but without. It, it, is, it is the righteousness that is, that is alien. It's foreign to us. It is the righteousness which comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. What happens if we get these things backwards? If we get them out of order, if we get them upside down, or we neglect them entirely, what are the consequences of that? The title of today's sermon is Leaving the Commandments of God. Well, that ought to give you a hint as to the stakes. There's no, the, the stakes are such that, and Jesus makes this plain, that there's nothing less than an abandonment of the Word of God, its authority and its sufficiency, if we get these things wrong if we misidentify or misdiagnose the source of corruption, or if we seek to apply a different remedy to that corruption, the stakes are high. So there's a danger of man-made religion. There's a danger to man-made religion. What we find with the Pharisees is not a victimless crime. And the spirit of the Pharisee, in a sense, in many different ways, continues to live on, doesn't it? And if we're honest, the Word of God will help us to discover where that spirit of the Pharisee still re resides in us. It still resides even among his people. So we have to ask the question, what happens if we do not properly diagnose the true source of corruption, uncleanness, and sin? And this, this question applies to whether we're thinking about ourselves or someone else. As parents, what happens in your parenting if you don't truly and accurately diagnose the cause of your children's folly? If you, don't act, if you don't accurately diagnose the reason that they act a fool sometimes. If you don't diagnose that correctly, you're going to apply the wrong solution, are you? What happens if we do not discern correctly the true source of cleansing, the true source of righteousness? So let's consider today the dangers and damages of man-made religion. I don't often employ alliteration, but it just happened to work out really well this week. I'm going to give you four. Four. What are four dangers? What are four damages of man-made religion? First is that it displaces the Word of God. So that's word one, is displace. Secondly, Man-made religion deceives both the teacher and the hearer. So that's your second word, deceive or deception. Thirdly, it distracts us from the true root of sin. So that's your third word, distract. And fourthly, it discourages the faithful. Discourages the faithful. So displace, deceive, distract, and discourage. Let's read now together. From God's holy word, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, I'll read down to verse 23. Hear the word of God. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it was written. The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters his heart, enter, enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's consider our first D. It displaces or dishonors the word of God. The first danger of man-made religion is the one that's most dire. It's the one that's most immediately threatening, the one that is most damaging. Man-made religion displaces, it dishonors, it diminishes the authority of God's word. And Jesus goes immediately right to this key danger. He shows how the traditions of, of the elders is nothing less than a direct assault on the unique authority of God's word. It is a direct frontal attack on the authority of God's word. Matthew Henry says, those who are most zealous of their own impositions are commonly most careless of God's commands, which is a good reason why Christ's disciples should stand upon their guard against such impositions, lest Though at first they seem only to infringe the liberty of Christians, they come at length to confront the authority of Christ. See what he's saying? It, it may seem like at first that this is just merely an imposition on my Christian liberty, but what comes next is always to confront the authority of Christ himself. And Henry is exactly right. When we add to the word of God, it is never, ever, ever merely an addition on top of the Word of God. It is always, always, always subtraction by addition. It is always an undermining of the true authority of God's Word. Notice what Jesus says. Look back at verse 8. Well, let's go back up. In verse 5, he quotes, in responding, the Pharisees come and they say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Notice Specifically, the charge they make is not, why are you not following Moses, which is the word of God? See, they had added, Moses wasn't enough. The law of God wasn't enough. Now, under the Mosaic law, did, did, did this whole idea of washing just come out of nowhere? Did they invent that entirely? No. But, what, but it was required only of the priests and only when they were making a sacrifice on behalf of God's people. And the Pharisees thought, well, that's really not good enough. What it need, we need to make this more universal so that it applies to everyone under every circumstance. 
to the added to the word of God. God had given a provision for his people to maintain a purity in their worship, and he said, no, now it applies everywhere in every circumstance. And so they come to Jesus and accuse him of not managing his disciples appropriately because they were eating in discordance to the tradition of the elders. And they eat with, I'll use air quotes, defiled hands. And Jesus immediately goes to Isaiah, and he says, well, did Isaiah, can you imagine this scene? He looks at this this entourage from Jerusalem and all of their official pageantry and their, 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 their robes and their phylacteries and all of this formal religious aura, and he looks at them and said, Isaiah prophesied about you hypocrites. Well, how's that for a conversation starter? Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, this wasn't new. This was not something new at all. The the fathers of the Pharisees had been doing this for generations. All the way back to the time of Isaiah and even before that. They were adding to the word of God. Now look what Jesus says in response to that. He quotes Isaiah and said, Isaiah, speaking of you men, you're hypocrites. But look at verse 8. You leave the commandment of God. And the Pharisees would say, we didn't leave the commandment of God. We just augmented it a little bit. We just added to it. Jesus said, no, no, no. You don't add to the word of God without actually leaving it. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Then look overhead at verse 13, thus making void the word of God. You see, Jesus, in three different ways, says you relieve the commandment, you reject the commandment, and you make void the word of God. And what they have left at the end of all this is not God's word at all. They have a new, superficial, lesser standard that has replaced the word of God in its authority. And this is the way, saints, it always happens when we try to add to the Word of God. We cannot simply set our own ideas, our own commandments, our own notions on top of the Word of God and have the Word of God continue with its place of authority. The Pharisees' additions were actually subtractions. And specifically, they were subtractions from the law of God. And in this particular case, Jesus illustrates it in their rejection of the fifth commandment. He says, Moses says, which in other words is saying, God commands, honor your father and mother. That's the affirmative command. Negatively, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now, there's an interesting thing here that that Jesus says with this, this idea of korban. And he says, you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have had gained from me is korban. Now, it's a unique word. It only comes here in Mark, and he's describing a Pharisaic tradition that they had invented. And so what they would do, and and we we know from other places in the scriptures, other places where Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, that they like to make public vows. They like to make these ostentatious oaths to demonstrate their righteousness. So here's what they would do. Let's say they had a bull, or maybe as a piece of property, and they would say, I declare this as Corban meaning it's set aside, it's dedicated to the Lord, it cannot be touched. And they would make this very ceremonial, ostentatious, public vow, self-promoting kind of religion. Then an interval of time passes, and their own father or mother has need. And they would sit back in all of their holiness and say, well, Dad, I would love to help you, but, you know, my fields I've described and dedicated as korban. Now, what should have happened? They should have renounced their foolish, self-serving vow and obeyed the law to serve their parents rather than their own tradition. So see, they were adding, but they were actually taking away. So they were adding to the word of God by developing this whole elaborate system that God had never commanded them. But the net effect of that, according to our Lord, is that they were actually neglecting the fifth commandment. And then not only that, Jesus says, and many such things you do. 
Now think about this, even up to this point in Mark so far. Think back a couple of chapters. Jesus was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and there's a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees used that occasion to try to trap him. Is he going to heal a man on the Sabbath or not? Now what does the sixth commandment require of you? That you do good to your neighbor, that you promote his life if you can. Here's a man injured, and Jesus had the capacity to heal him, and the Pharisees sat back in all of their holiness and said, you can't do this on the Sabbath day. Mar or Luke tells us that it was the man's right hand, which probably means it was his provision. Now we're dealing with the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment says don't steal, but the positive side of that says go and work with your own hands. This man couldn't work. You see, they were adding to, they were adding to the rules and regulations that were never there on the Sabbath. And now they're going, now they're breaking this, they're setting aside the sixth commandment because they've added provisions with respect to the fourth. They're setting aside parts of the eighth commandment because they're adding to the fourth. But not only that, Jesus tells them, guys, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So they've actually, the very command that they're seeking, at least ostensibly, they're trying to, to uphold, they're actually undoing by their hypocrisy. See, do you see what Jesus is saying? There's, there's many other things like this that you do. And, and, of course, we could go to multiple places. I could show you where he criticized them for the way that they took vows. And so they, they took these vows, which were supposed to promote honesty, and they were actually using them to promote dishonesty. So the ninth commandment. And, of course, the tenth commandment is over and over and over again violated by their covetous hearts. So we could, we could prove probably one through ten of all the commandments where they had torn them down by adding to the word of God. Do you see what Jesus is doing? This is subtraction by addition. He's saying that you are leaving the commandments, you're rejecting the commandments, you're making void the word of God by seeking to add to it. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, will we see that this is no small thing to add to the word of God, to add commandments to the word of God, to say that something is sin that God has not said is sin? It's a very serious matter. It's not, it is not good for us to add to the word of God. But I want to hasten to say on the other side, what Jesus presents to them, he says, what you should have done, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That is the law of God that you've neglected. Brothers and sisters, it is not legalism to insist that we obey the law. That's not legalism. Legalism takes all kinds of forms, and it is pernicious, it is deadly, but it is not legalism to say God's word says this and we have to obey that. That's not legalism. Legalism is adding to the word of God. It's adding to the word of God. All Christians, indeed all humans, are bound to obey God's holy law. And the intent to please God doesn't make it right. If we say we're going to add something else to God's, God's word because we want to please him, that doesn't make it right just because we feel like it's right. J.C. Ryle makes this observation. I think this is really helpful. He says it very succinctly. He says, the first step of the Pharisees was to add their traditions to the scriptures as useful supplements. The second was to place them on a level with the word of God and give them equal authority. The last was to honor them, mean their own traditions, above the scriptures and to degrade scripture from its lawful position. This was the state of things which our Lord found when he was upon earth. Practically, the traditions of men were everything and the word of God was nothing at all. Obedience to the traditions constituted true religion. Obedience to the scriptures was lost sight of altogether. This was subtraction by addition. <clears throat> Most true Christians, and I mentioned this last week, I think would immediately raise an objection if someone declared publicly that something which God has declared is sin is not sin. 
And of course, we see this with the, the, the whole mess regarding uh, human sexuality and all of the perversions that are being thrust upon us and people calling what God says is clearly sin and calling it good. But are we equally troubled as God's people the other way around? When someone stands up and says something is sin, when God has not said it is sin, both of those are assaults against the authority of God's word. Both of them are. And we should not say we're troubled by one, but not the other. We ought to be consistent. So let's think about the second, the second deed, the second damage here. The damage of man-made religion, not only does it displace or dishonor the word of God, but it deceives. It deceives both the hearer and the teacher. And I want to say specifically, man-made traditions deceive both teacher and hearer into a rejection of Christ as the true source of righteousness and cleansing. See, there's a deception inherent here in the text. The Pharisees come to Jesus regarding his disciples and saying, they're eating with defiled hands. They are defiled. They've been in the marketplace. We have witnesses they were in the marketplace, and now they're eating. They're defiled. They're taking in that defilement upon them. They're going to defile everybody around them. And they were deceived, and they were deceiving others about the nature of corruption, about the nature of defilement. Man-made religion religion deceives even the very sincere. Even the disciples were concerned about the Pharisees' response. In, In Matthew's gospel, it records that at this very point, the disciples come to Jesus and said, Because Jesus said, what what goes into a man doesn't defile him, it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. And the disciples go to Jesus and said, the Pharisees were offended by that. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall for that. But see, they were, but but they weren't, they were generally troubled by this. And it's hard for us to understand because from from our perspective, we've we've been around enough to know that when when we hear about the Pharisees in our Bibles, we have a negative association with them. But that was not the case for your average Jew in the first century. They could not imagine someone more righteous and holy than the Pharisees. And if you didn't believe them, just ask the Pharisees. You know, they, they, they were the epitome. They were the outward picture of righteousness. They were the ones who, who were so scrupulous and so fastidious to, to, to follow every detail of the law. In fact, even make up other details to add to the law. So the crowds would have assumed, and particularly when this delegation came down from Jerusalem, this was the holiest of the holy. The most righteous of the righteous is here. This was, in a sense, righteousness personified, and yet they were missing the true righteousness incarnated right there before them. And they were deceiving men. And the, the, the disciples themselves were even unsettled by this. Jesus, teacher, I mean, aren't you bothered by the fact that the rabbis, or that the Pharisees, I mean, they're, they're offended. Now, the implication of that is, you know, who are we to say, but maybe, maybe you're off on this one, Jesus. See, they were deceived. And, and Jesus recognizes these these unholy men were deceived into thinking that they were righteous. And and, and on top of that, righteous men were deceived into questioning their good standing with God. It's both. The unrighteous, the Pharisees, the ones who thought they needed no doctor because they weren't sick, they were deceived into thinking they're well. And the sick, who actually did need a physician, were deceived into thinking that there was not one available for them. Jesus calls them blind guides. The scribes were experts in the law. They read the scriptures constantly, but the irony is they didn't understand them. They they did not see their Messiah in them. They did not understand that all of Moses, all the law, all the prophets pointed to Jesus Christ, who is the true and final lawgiver and and our great high priest. And they, they ended up willingly rejecting the cleansing and healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our our confession, 
uh, speaks in, in many places about the unique place of God's word, about the unique place of God's law as the unchallenged authority for all of life, and particularly for the life of the believer. If you, if you have a copy of your confession, if you turn with me to chapter 16, or you can find this in your, your Trinity hymnal there, chapter 16 is a, is a wonderful little chapter called Of Good Works. And, and I'm just going to read the first paragraph. It's very short. Of good works. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word. Now, that doesn't sound very complicated, does it? It's pretty straightforward. But oh, how much that pushes back against not only the Pharisees of Jesus' day, but the spirit of Phariseeism right now. Good works are only, only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. Now, is that a, I think that's a fair description of what we're seeing with the Pharisees, isn't it? Blind zeal and a pretense of good intentions. What were their intentions? Maintain cleanliness. Maintain purity. So the way you do that is you wash your hands a certain way when you come from certain places. And you follow the tradition of our elders. And, and then they took the next step and said, and it's sin if you don't do that. You are you are committing an offense against God himself if you don't do this. And we confess, because the scriptures confess, that good works are defined as being only those things that God has commanded in his holy word. There may be good things that you do in your own home, just preferences that you have. There may be customs, your own traditions of men, that in your home is, is fine. It's when you take the next step and say, this is what everybody must do in order to be righteous. You know, in our house, we homeschool our kids. I'm a big proponent of that. I think there's great merit in that. But then I take the next step and say, God requires this of everyone in order to be righteous, in order to be holy, in order to be pleasing and acceptable in his sight. I don't have the authority to do that, and neither do you. I can say in, in my home, we have a date night every single week and have for years and years and years. It's wonderful. It's a blessing. But it would be a breach of my authority to say, you must do likewise, and if you don't, you're in sin. Because God doesn't say to do that. It's a blessing. It's been helpful to us. But it's not sin not to do that or do something different. Those are just a couple of examples. I'll turn with you one other place in our confession, chapter 21. Chapter 21 is, is one of the most foundational and important doctrines of the entire Reformation. It's the idea of liberty of conscience. If you read John Owen and John Calvin and many of the other reformers, they, they will write frequently on this matter of liberty of conscience. And coming out of, you know the, a little bit of the history, coming out of the Reformation, or coming into the Reformation, the central issue was, how is a man justified before God, right? Rome had their answer by a combination of works and grace. The Reformer said, nope, the Bible's pretty clear, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that one is justified by God, full stop. That was doctrine, we could say, 1A of the Reformation. The doctrine 1B the next most important, and it was a very close second, was the doctrine of liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience. I'm going to read from paragraph 2 in this case. It's, again, another short paragraph, but look what it says. God alone is Lord of the conscience. So this gets to the very heart level, not just our outward deeds, but, but our inward thoughts, what, what accuses us, what convicts us of sin, and also what tells us we are right with God. God alone is Lord of that conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. Now, Jesus particularly brought a passage out of Isaiah. It says, you teach as doctrines 
the commandments of men. See, that was a problem. It was a huge problem. Your teaching as something that God has commanded, what actually only men have commanded. And because of the, 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 the nature of the atoning work of Christ and, and that which he purchased for you if you were in Christ, he purchased for you a freedom. And part of that freedom was freedom from the doctrines and commandments of men, including your own doctrines and commandments. He has left it free, your conscience, he has left free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith. An absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. And this is why Jesus did not tell his disciples, look, guys, just wash your hands. Let's just go along. I mean, for the sake of peace, let's don't cause a problem. Let's go wash your hands, and it's not that big a deal. Jesus recognized the gospel itself was in jeopardy which again is why the very same reason, and, and we go to the book of Galatians, why Paul said this whole circumcision matter is very serious. If anybody thinks they're justified before God by taking on circumcision, now they've obligated themselves to the whole law, which they cannot obey. Circumcision itself, it's nothing. It's audio for it's either, it's either It doesn't matter one way or the other. But if you believe that's how you're justified before God, now it matters. See, the Pharisees were deceived regarding what a good work is. And they were deceiving others. They, they, they thought because they wanted, and the tradition of their elders said, you should wash your hands. That's a good work. And now we're going to impose that on others. And Jesus said, it's not contained in the word of God. Moses never commanded that. So it cannot be a good work. And your consciences cannot be bound to that. They were also deceiving their hearers and themselves with respect to how is it that someone can be made clean. See, they assumed a defilement that wasn't there and then offered a solution that wasn't biblical. Their hearts were deceived, believing, the crowd believed that the Pharisees must know what they're talking about when it comes to holiness, when it comes to righteousness. I mean, come on, look at their robes. they got to know what they're talking about. Look at their reputations. Surely they know what they're doing. They were deceiving those around them. You know, I was involved, Gene and I were involved <coughs> in uh, youth ministry in the, in the late 90s. And that was maybe the zenith of the so-called purity culture in the late 90s. And working with youth and the, the purity rings and the, the purity ceremonies and the events, and, and, and those all started with really good intentions. Because surely, 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 it's a very, very good thing to declare to young people to flee from sexual immorality. Right? That's the law of God. Flee from sexual immorality. It's also a very good thing for, to encourage them and urge them to pursue moral sexual chastity before the Lord. That's a good thing. But we also witnessed that many of those teachings began to creep and veer into a modern Pharisaism in which purity was defined externally. Purity was defined only according to the body. Only according to the outward self. And sometimes even worse, and particularly with a young woman, if she had, I'll use air quotes again, lost her purity... There was no hope for her. She was defiled and unclean. But did, did the apostles agree with such teaching? I mean, not at all. I mean, consider Paul's testimony to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You, but you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were made right. You were not what you once were. God has set you free. He has delivered you. He, has, he is the source of your purity. Should you pursue sexual chastity? Yes, absolutely. Should you flee from all sexual immorality? Absolutely. Pray that it would be so. But is your purity only established by your outward activity? No. No. I saw a quote this, this week from a Reformed Baptist pastor I thought I really liked. He said, error will always be smuggled into the church under the guise of greater piety. Error will always be smuggled into the church under the guise of greater piety. See, the Pharisees wanted a greater piety, didn't they? And they went about it the wrong way. So we see these, this man-made religion displaces the word of God. It deceives both hearer and teacher. And, and thirdly, our third D, it distracts. It distracts. And particularly, especially, it distracts from the true root of sin. Man-made religion distracts us. It diverts us, our thinking, from seeing and dealing with the true root of sin. And you know what? Jesus takes this seriously. Something happens in verse 14 that I don't recall. I know I haven't seen it yet in Mark, but this is very rare. Normally the crowds are pressing upon Jesus, and he's doing everything he can to, 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 to get a respite, to push them back a little bit. But here, he called the people to himself. See, the Pharisees come, level the charge against the disciples, and implicitly level charges against Jesus. And Jesus, you know what? Everybody, come here. You need to hear this. This is, this is how serious this is. This is no small thing. This is not a victimless crime. You all need to hear this. And what does he say? Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. See, Jesus recognized the whole crowd was distracted now. This whole situation had distracted people from what the true source of cleansing really is. It distracts them from, particularly from the true source of where sin comes from. Because if we go around thinking that sin primarily is an external problem, if we walk around thinking sin is primarily out there and we just have to avoid it, And we're going to cause ourselves and others around us a great deal of heartache, aren't we? What goes into a man does not defile. Scriptures present to us two parts of a human being, body and soul. What Jesus is saying is, what comes into a man, what, what, he, what he eats, what he takes in the marketplace, and he eats or he drinks, it goes into his stomach, not his heart. In other words, what he's saying, it doesn't defile his inward man. It's merely his outward man that's affected by that. Now, there have been times when you've eaten something, you feel like, well, that one defiled me. You know, I'm up all night feeling defiled. But that's not what he's, he's talking about. It's, it's just, but, it, but eventually, it passes into the latrine, and maybe that's part of the problem in the middle of the night, it, it, is, is that it's, it's, it's only dealing with your human, your external person. It hasn't touched your soul. Jesus said, is that which was in, that is within man that does that. Man-made religion is always concerned with physical and external things, and it distracts us from the true root of defilement. It distracts us from recognizing indwelling sin, and sin certainly affects the body. No doubt about that. Sin affects the body, especially unconfessed sin. But its root is in the heart and soul of man. I was in the elementary school. I was in elementary school in the in the seventies, and the real impressive problem, particularly among boys back in the seventies, was the, the the scourge, the plague of cooties. And of course, you kept cooties from girls. Knew that, and so you made every effort to avoid any kind of contact whatsoever. Even the mere brushing by of a girl would would rend you, rend you, infected with cooties. And we had a whole regimen of cleansing 
if you had to pass it on to someone else, right? And, 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 I, and it's a very silly example, isn't it? But is it so far afield of what the Pharisees were doing? You went into the marketplace. You, you were somehow just defiled by stuff in the air, by touching somebody else, brushing up against them in the crowds. The Pharisees would walk on the opposite side of the streets because if they touched someone, they had to go, the word they used was baptizo, they had to go completely immersed to cleanse their whole bodies which in the ancient world was a bigger deal than it is today, even to take a full bath and to get underwater. Now, this is not to say, of course, that we should embrace all things, that we are undiscerning as God's people in the marketplace, that we just go anywhere now, and it doesn't matter where we go, doesn't matter what we do, doesn't matter who we're on, no, who we're around, no, Paul says very clearly, bad company corrupts good morals. There may indeed be great temptations for us in the public square, in the marketplace. The scriptures are very clear that we are, we are assaulted daily by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the world is not the source of our uncleanness. That's the distinction we have to make. And when we, when we neglect the real root problem, when we're distracted, and we, we, we're too busy thinking about these other extraneous rules, and we forget the true problem is me. Your true problem is you. When we neglect that, we also neglect the true cure. And, and cleaning up external things, whether it's our behavior or our words or our actions, that doesn't do anything to cure the inner disease. James was surely right when he declared in his epistle in chapter 4 that what causes, he asked this question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? I ask this question a lot at home. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And usually the answer is, he took my stuff. That's what caused this. That's not the biblical answer, though, is it? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, James asked, that, you, that your passions are at war where? Within you. You lust and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So where does the corruption come from? Inside. That's the source. Children, young people, hear, hear this. If you're here today and you've, you've not turned to Christ to heal you of that inward corruption, if you've not placed your hope, your trust, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to, want, to be the only one who can cleanse you from your sin, the only one can heal you, from those sins, those faults that you are aware of that exist within you. You have to realize you will never be able to heal yourself. You will never be able to cleanse yourself. Do not be distracted by a system or a set of rules to say that this will work to solve the problem for you. Only Christ can do that. You know, if you're sick with an infection, and this is the this, this season, we've seen a lot of just bizarre illnesses and infections, even among our, our church body. And, and you know, you, you may take a, medic, a medication for a particular symptom, for a headache or a stuffy nose. But that doesn't do anything to kill the virus, does it? It's treating symptoms. And sometimes in a physical sickness, you need an outside cure. You need something to act upon you from the outside to heal you of that disease. And with spiritual sickness, we must always have an outside cure. We must always have an outside cure. We have, must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must believe that he died to take away our sins. We must believe that his word, his promises are true. And when we neglect the true root of sin, when we focus on external remedies, when we focus on man-made religion, Inevitably, Jesus says this leads to hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And if repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not sought after, we remain then. Following after our own rules, our own laws. Saints, will we heed the warning that Jesus gives against hypocrisy? In a sense, will you hear him 
pointing his finger at us. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So it displaces the word of God. It deceives both hearer and teacher, and it distracts from the true source of sin. And, and lastly, and I'll go quickly here, it discourages the faithful. It discourages the faithful. You know, and, and I mentioned this already, but Matthew records that when the disciples hear all this exchange, they come to Jesus and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Now, why do you suppose they say that? Because their own consciences are now troubled. I mean, even the, even the disciples, because they, they viewed the Pharisees as holy and righteous men. And so when the Pharisees came and said, this is what you must do to be righteous. And if you don't do this, you are defiled and unclean. And the disciples are coming sheepishly to Jesus privately and saying, uh, Jesus, what if they're right? Is that true? Their own tender consciences, do you see, were, were affected. They were assaulted by this false claim of the Pharisees. The disciples come to Jesus and say the Pharisees were offended, but they were looking for confirmation from him that they were, that they were okay. Because in their minds, the traditions of the elders was the very definition of righteousness. And so to say, for Jesus to say, brothers, that's not what you need to do. That's not required of you in order to be righteous. I am required in order for you to be righteous. And they were unsettled, weren't they? And I, you probably could think of many examples in your own walk or, or maybe dealing with others where someone was unsettled because someone else had laid a command or burden or a practice, maybe well-intentioned upon them. And now someone's conscience is grieved. Well, I, I, don't, I don't do that. Maybe I'm not a true Christian. Or... The thing you're saying I'm not supposed to do, I, I, I do that sometimes. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Remember, I learned this, this pastorally. This was very early, early on after we'd planted the church. And near the end of a sermon, I noticed that one of, of the dear sisters in the church was just weeping openly. And that continued all the way through the Lord's Supper. She didn't take the Lord's Supper. And so I went to her privately afterwards and, and asked if she was okay. And, and, and she was just just grieved. And apparently she had been talking to some ladies in the church and shared with them that she was struggling in a couple of ways. And so they placed upon her something not very different than the hand washings. Well, you have to do this. This is what you really need to do to be growing. And she wasn't good at that. And you need to not do these other things. And that was, and so she looked at herself, compared herself to these disciplines that these well-intentioned ladies had given to her. And her conscience was unsettled. And I, and I had the opportunity to sit there and say, well, can you show me from the scriptures? Did they show you from the scriptures where you're required to do that? Well, no. Then God is not angry with you. You've not sinned against God. That is not the test of orthodoxy. That is not a test of devotion to God. It might be a good thing. If, if it's helpful for them, praise God. But that's not a command that God has placed upon you. You see, something like that. And, and, I, and I remember walking away just, I was furious. I was angry. Because my precious sister's conscience had been burdened in that way. And she was questioning whether she was even a Christian or not. And I think how much more was the righteous, holy, white anger of our Lord incensed by these men? Deceiving, distracting, distorting his word and scattering sheep in the process. And many such things you do was his statement to the Pharisees. 
you know, and I was dealing with this, this sister, and, I, and this, this thing, this, the, same, the, the circumstances were different, but the situation has come up, I can't even count how many times. And especially as folks have come to us out of more legalistic traditions, and I get questions like, Pastor, is, 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 is it okay to do X, Y, or Z? What does the Word of God say? Well, my previous pastor said, stop, stop. What does the Word of God say? And I think about Peter when he stood up at, at the Jerusalem Council, and there was this whole, you know, hullabaloo that had erupted over the issue of circumcision and, and dietary laws with respect to Gentiles being saved in mass and coming into the church. And the Jews, some of the Jews were saying, no, they, in order to be Christians, we're, we're, we're thankful they're here, mostly, kind of, but we're, 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 we're glad, but they've got to become Jews first. They need to be circumcised. They need to keep all the law of Moses. Then and only then can they become true followers of Christ. And so the elders from Jerusalem, all the representatives from various churches met. This was the first associationalism. And they met and were described in this way in, verse, in Acts 15, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we or our fathers have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You see what he says? The Gentiles, have their hearts have been cleansed by faith just like ours. They were not cleansed by ritual or ceremony or law. They were cleansed by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like us. Why then would you add to them burdens that our fathers were not able to bear and we were not able to bear? Why would you do that to them? These are our brothers. May the Spirit of the living God give us understanding, saints. And perhaps he's convicted you today of the sin of adding to God's word. Perhaps you've been, on, you've been in some ways victimized by this. And I pray that the Spirit of God would give your conscience a settled comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, the authority and the sufficiency of his word. We need to understand the true source of corruption. That just needs to be fixed in our minds. The true source of corruption is inward. It is inward. Again, temptations come from outside. Not disputing that, that's, that's a fact of life. But it's only because of the inward corruption. Our Lord Jesus faced outward corruptions all day, every day, didn't he? He faced temptations of all kinds, and he was, those temptations were never met by an inward desire that lusted after those things. For you and I, it is not the case. We also need to recognize the true source of cleansing. And then meditate upon what, what are, what's the harm? What's the damage? Again, not a victimless crime. So if we confuse true source of corruption and we confuse true source of healing, what's the consequence for that? And according to the Lord Jesus, just in this text alone, we see at least four damages, dangers. It deplaces and dishonors the word of God. It, it deceives both the teacher and the hearer. It distracts from the true root of sin. It discourages the faithful, and unsettles the consciences of God's people. May the Lord give us understanding. May he give us grace uh, to believe and to hold fast to the authority of his word, to be satisfied with his word alone. Amen? Well, let's give our attention to prayer now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our great high priest, and you've also often and also spoken to us this morning as our great prophet 
who teaches accurately the things of God, the greater Moses, the true lawgiver. You've also spoken to us as our king, who has every right to rule and reign over us, but who is also the one who provides benevolently and protects us in all things. We pray that your grace would abound, that we as your people would understand your word, would believe it, would be satisfied in it, and that we would forsake desires that remain in us to add to your word and to make those additions binding upon our brothers and sisters while we go on neglecting the weightier matters of the law. We confess that we have done exactly that. We've sought to bind the consciences of others. We've neglected your law. and We pray that by the power of your spirit, we would, we would understand and discern those things in ourselves. And according to the righteousness of Christ, we would flee from that and be satisfied in him alone. Amen.